You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay. Tov. So what we're going to talk about tonight, Be'ezr Hashem, is again the possibility of living in a world of as if, the possibility of pretending that everything is beseder and that everything is the way it's meant to be. And even though outside and inside there seems to be distractions and there seems to be difficulty and there seems to be interruptions and minios, nevertheless, our avoida and our job is to act as if everything is beseder and to act ki'ilu everything is beseder. Now, it's not going to be a fancy shir. We're going to look at two stories that Jewish people have brought into the world in the hopes of waking us up. Now, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov spent most of his short life trying to teach Torah a Torah that is a rare type of Torah, a Hungarian wine, a, a wine that is better tasting than most wines. And ultimately, towards the end of his short life, Rabbi Nachman decided that his Torah wasn't doing the trick anymore. His Torah wasn't hitting the point. His Torah wasn't speaking to that place that he had hoped to speak to in his students. And he announced that I'm going to start telling stories over. And the goal, as Rabbi Nachman writes in the 60th teaching of Lukut Maharan, is to awaken the soul of the Jewish individual who has fallen into the slumber of existential reality. That so many things in our lives, so many things in the world, make us fall asleep. Sometimes the deep slumber is because of inactivity, a boredom, a boredom that pervades the every aspect of adult life, a boredom that sees oldness and grayness in every crevice of our experience. And then there's a slumber which emerges when there's too much going on, when there's simply too much for the individual to handle in their mind, there's too much to deal with. And sometimes the only comfortable thing that a person can do is to fall asleep is to fall into a sleep, perchance to dream, to have comfort from the frightening reality of the world. What psychoanalysts used to ask the question of, what's so frightening about a nightmare? Is it that the nightmare is more frightening than reality? Or is it that waking up from the nightmare is more frightening because reality is overwhelming? Either way we slice it, either way we look at it, we have fallen asleep in our individual lives, in our collective lives. And the goal of stories, Rabbi Nachman says, is to awaken us. He says that by the rest of the world, the way that the world operates is that they tell stories to their children to put them to sleep. 
But what I'm going to try and do, says Rabbi Nachman, is I am going to try and tell stories to awaken people. Now, what happens when we fall asleep? What happens when we find ourselves stuck within the nocturnal landscape where things are frightening and overwhelming and every day brings worse news than the next? The only way forward is to enter into the landscape of imagination, rather the dreamscape of imagination, where the limitations, where the requirements of logic and the dictates of rational thinking fall away and we can allow ourselves to suspend our rationality for but a moment to live within that dream space, to live within that place where change is possible and miracles are possible and where one thing can become the other and very quickly turn back into itself without even the blink of an eye. Because in the dreamscape, we can meet the past and we can meet the future and the temporal fragmentation that we very often live with which so deeply cuts between the past, the present, and the future, begins to fall away, as Rabbi Nachman says. That like in a dream where I can think that I have lived 150 years in my dream, and in reality all I have done is lived for five minutes. The dream, the chalom, is a place where we are freed. It's where our imagination is set free to allow ourselves to suspend the need to feel everything rationally, to feel everything deeply, but rather to simply live within the dreamscape of our emotions, to live within the freedom of our demyonos. Now the two stories that I want to read tonight and splice together tonight are going to be written by the heart of the Jewish people. The first one, which I didn't decide to share until very few moments ago, is going to be a story written by a Jew who suffered the hell of Jewish history, who moved in and through the hellish landscape of World War II, and his name was Maurice Sendik. Now Maurice Sendik wrote, at least to me, one of the most profoundly impactful stories of my life. I can still remember hearing it from my parents, they should live and be well. The story of where the wild things are because I've always connected myself to where the wild things are, but as of late, where the wild things are seems to be more of a poignant narrative of our present moment. Because what happens in where the wild things are is as follows. Max is a mischievous young boy. Max, in his excitement, in his youthful intensity of experience, begins to create a ruckus in his home begins to move against the rules, stops functioning within the adult world of rules and regulations, and wants to live within Dimyon, wants to live with an imagination, wants to be himself. But as usual, that childish enthusiasm begins to impinge and rub up against the limitations of adulthood, and he's banished to his room. He's placed in quarantine, so to speak. He's told that he can no longer show his excitement, but rather he must sit alone in isolation to think about and contemplate what he has done. And Max finds himself where we all find ourselves, stuck in our own private spaces, confined to our own rooms, no longer allowed to engage in the world with that youthful frivolousness and excitement and innocence that we all hold so deeply in our hearts. 
And Max has two options in front of him. Max can either fall sway to the despondency of isolation, to the despondency of the rules and regulations, which seem so severe and unfair. Or, as Max teaches us, one can enter into the dreamscape of the mind. One can create worlds upon worlds, wherein imagination reigns free. And Max, in his isolation, sees very quickly how his room of isolation opens up into vistas and limitless seas and forests. And Max, traveling in his little boat across raging waters, across the frightening visions that emerge in the mind's eye and in the dreamscape of life, Max travels day and night, and he finally arrives in the place of the wild things. He finally enters into the jungle of madness, into that space where rationality no longer even holds a candle. And what Max confronts is terror. Max is confronted by monsters and beasts of every kind. Every type of existential nightmare and anxiety and depressive sentiment that we hold in our hearts in the present moment and throughout our historicity in our own lives is encountered by Max. And the monsters gnash their terrible teeth and they craw their terrible claws and their yellowish, feverish eyes frighten Max. And once again, Max is faced with one of two options, to fall sway to the fear, to be overcome and drowned by the fear, or rather to overcome the fear and be mitmoded with it and to face it. And Max, strengthening himself, drawing upon the reservoirs of faith that lay deeply within his childish heart, he says, silence and be still. And the wild things were silent and they were still. And they crowned Max the king of the wild things, for there was none more frightening than him. Because while terror is frightening, the one who is able to face terror, the one who is able to look terror in the eye and say, be still, you don't frighten me, terror bows in the face of that. Fear bows in the face of he who is capable of overcoming fear. As Rabbi Nachman teaches us, not to give in to fear whatsoever. And Max becomes the ruler of the wild things. And he creates a world of fantasy and a world of success and a world of connection and a world of acceptance and a place where he is accepted for his childish antics, where he is capable of being himself aware that in spite of the fact that this is not real and it's not rational, nevertheless, I can live in this suspended space of imagination for but a moment. And then something happens. Max begins to feel homesick. Max begins to miss the adult world. Max begins to miss his home and his parents and the things that made him so comfortable. And Max begins to smell smells of home. He begins to smell the scent of home. He begins to remember where he truly wants to be. And he begins to try and tell the wild things that he's about to go. And he begins to try and break the news to the wild things and to say, I'm sorry, I love you, but I need to return home now. I need to return back to the world of rationality. I need to return back to that space of order and structure. And the wild things are not okay with this. And they say, please don't go, please don't go. We'll eat you up. I love you so. Please don't go, please don't go. I'll eat you up. I love you so. That intensity of love, 
that intensity of connection, that desire to hold on to the imaginative space of comfort for but one moment more, because returning to the reality of the world is too frightening. Please don't go, please don't go, we'll eat you up, we love you so. We'd rather devour you than have you leave us. We'd rather stay buried within the safety of imagination than return back to the frightful sights of the outside. But nevertheless, Max says, be still. Remember who's in charge here. And Max travels back to his home, across the seas, across the days, and across the terrible nights. And he finally returns back to his room that has ceased being a forest, and it has ceased being a jungle. And what is waiting for him at his door is the dinner that his loving mother had left for him and the scent that had reawoken his desire to be back in a place of structure. Now, what Max teaches us is that imagination and the ability to suspend our, imag to suspend our rationality gives us the gift and the ability to find comfort in the dreamscape of our lives to live in a world of as if, that even though we know it's not true, and even though we know we're not there yet, and even though we know that the imaginings that we tell ourselves are not deeply felt both rationally or even emotionally, nevertheless, they are valuable in the moments that they are experienced. But the more important teaching I believe that Max teaches us and that Morris Sendik is teaching us is that to experience dimyon, to experience imagination, to live in that world of suspended rationality where we can quiet down the outside and find comfort within the hunkering down within our comfortable dreams of the inside. All of that is for the sake of returning back to the world with the renowned belief that even though everything looks frightening according to the rational eye, there is even something more powerful than rationality. There is the world of dimyon. There is the world of imagination. There is the world of ki'ilu. There are the moments of Shabbos in our lives, where even though we know that they are not the fullest expression of what is going on, nevertheless, those moments, those pockets of energy are real and they leave a lasting import and a lasting impression on the mind. So that after the dream, having awoken from the fantasy and the dream of comfort, of being in charge, of saying be still, of quieting down the noise, Max is now capable of returning back to the real world and remembering the small details that are pleasurable, remembering the scent of the food that his mother has cooked for him remembering the comforts of this world, no matter how frightening and frustrating they might be. Now, many, many years before Maurice Sendik, there was another storyteller, and his name was Rabbi Nachman ben Fager, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who after trying to teach the most radical teachings to awaken the Jewish soul out of its slumber, to awaken the Jewish mind to the possibility of dreaming, he decided that Torah was no longer going to cut it for him. Torah was no longer going to do what he needed it to do. And therefore he awoke in himself and he girded himself to tell stories. 
I will now begin to tell stories. And everybody who hears these stories is going to have a hear her tshuva. Because as Rabbi Nachman said, I tell stories to awaken the soul that has fallen into slumber, to show how we can dream even while we are awake, that one need not fall into the unconsciousness of slumber in order to live in imagination. Because we can take the koiches of dimyon, we can take the possibility of imagination, the world of ki'ilu, the possibility of pretending, and we can draw it into our wakeful lives. Now, of Rabbi Nachman's stories, there's a singular story that created some difficulty for the Breslover Hasidim. One of the reasons for the difficulty is that this story only emerged in 1806, and the story emerged way after the other stories had been told. And the question was, if this story was so powerful, why don't we find discussions of this story beforehand? And Svi Mark, one of the tikkunim in the world of Breslov nowadays, who brings Kalim Chadashim to an old wine, has a very wonderful interpretation of why this story wasn't discussed. He says, first and foremost, we have to understand that this story is 100% authentic in manuscript form and in its narrative framework. But we can understand the reason that the story was hidden because of how radical it was, because of the power that Rabbi Nachman was conveying in the story. And ultimately, this shear is not so much a shear as much as it is a story, permission from the tzaddik hagadol, from Yechide Hadoros, from the unique ones of our generations, from Rinachman Menfega, Schuse Yoganelenu, to live in a world of imagination, to realize that even when we're pretending, even when our faith is not as strong as we would like it to be, or our bitachon is not as strong as we would like it to be, or our fear is a little bit more than we would like it to be, or our comfort is a little bit less than we truly feel, nevertheless, it is okay to live in a world of ki'ilu. It is okay to act as if, because acting as if is ultimately accessing a deep part of the mind, which is the world of Dimyon. And this is the story called Maise Mebitachon, the story or the tale of trust. The way it's been told over is also referred to as the great fixer. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and read the words of this short story. And then we'll spend a few moments afterwards trying to find what it might mean for us. And then we'll move forward, Bezras Hashem, with what will hopefully be the next year. There was once a certain king who thought to himself, who in the world has fewer stories than me? And allow yourself to find yourself within the emotions and the viscerality of the story. Allow yourself to be overtaken by the narrative framework that Rabbi Nachman of Breslau was capable of evoking within his listeners, a sense of annihilating and abolishing the boundary between fact and fiction. There was a certain king who thought to himself, who in the world has fewer worries than I do? I have everything good in the world. I am king and I am the ruler. And he decided to investigate if this was true. And he went out at night and he stood behind each house to hear what the people of the town were talking about. All he heard was everybody's worries. One had problems in his store and one had different problems in his house. And each house that he went to, he heard someone else talking about a problem that needed different types of assistance. 
Each and every person of his kingship had their own unique problems. One night, the, the king saw a very low house. It was like a cellar built half underground with windows at ground level. The roof was broken and sagging. There the king saw a man sitting happily and playing his fiddle. The king had to listen very carefully just to hear the silent music. This man was very happy. He had a jug of wine and various foods in front of him. And he was very happy. He was full of joy with no worries whatsoever. The king, who was in disguise at this point, went into the house and asked the man how he was doing. The man invited the stranger in to sit down and the king saw the jug of wine and the various foods and how the man was simply full of joy. He served his guest a drink and drank a toast to the king. Out of a deep love for this individual, the king also drank. Afterwards, the king laid down to sleep and he could see that this man in the broken down house, buried in the mud, was completely happy without a worry in the world. In the morning, the king arose, as did the man in the house, and he accompanied the king out of his house. And the king asks him, from where do you get all of this? Where do you find all of this joy? And the man responds, he said, I know how to fix things. I know how to repair things. I can repair anything that is broken. I'm not able to make anything from scratch. I can't make anything from nothing. But if something gets broken, I can repair it. Each morning I go out and I repair a few things. And then when I've earned five or six shillings, I purchase all the food and all the drink that I need for the night. When the king heard this, he said to himself, I'm going to ruin this for him. I'm not going to allow this to continue. The king went back to his palace. He took off his disguise and he issued a decree forbidding anyone who had something in need of repair from giving it to anybody else to repair. Either they would need to repair it on themselves or they would need to buy a new one. That morning, the man went out looking for people with things in need of repair, something that needed fixing. But they told him that the king had decreed that it was forbidden to give anybody anything to repair. The man was very upset about this, but he had trust. As he was walking, he noticed a householder chopping wood. And he says, why do you have to chop wood? And he says, is it fitting for someone like you to chop wood? And he said, I tried to find someone to chop wood for me, but I couldn't find anybody, so I was forced to chop it myself. And the man who used to fix things, who was no longer able to fix things, said, give it to me, I'll chop it for you. And he chopped the wood and the householder paid him a shilling. And the man saw that it was a good way to make a living and he went on to chop more wood until he earned six shillings and he again was capable of buying his entire meal. And it was really a meal. It was mamish asuda, hasuda haita hasuda. The meal was everything good in the world. And the man once again was very happy. That night, the king again peered in through the window of the man's house and saw him sitting there with his food and his drink and his joy as he had the night before. And the king went back into his house, dressed up in disguise, and he slept there again. 
And in the morning, the man arose and accompanied the king out. And the king once again said, from where do you find all of this? Where do you find this joy? Where do you find the money? And the man said, I used to repair everything that was broken. But then the king passed a decree prohibiting giving anything out to someone else to repair. So I chopped wood. And that's how I earned my money. The king left and issued a decree that nobody must give their wood over to anybody else to chop. When the man approached somebody offering to chop his wood, that person in the kingdom said, I can't let you, the king has issued a decree that nobody is allowed to chop wood. The man was very upset about this because he had no money, but he had trust in God. As he was walking, he, nobody, he noticed somebody cleaning their house. Is it fitting for you to clean your house? He asked. I looked for someone, the person said. I looked for someone to clean it, but I couldn't find anybody, so I have to do it myself. And the man who used to fix things, and the man who used to cut the trees, said, let me, I will clean it. And he set to work, and he cleaned out the whole stable. And the owner gave him two shillings. And he went and he cleaned more houses until he earned six shillings. And he was able to buy himself the entire meal, the wine and the food that he needed, and he was very, very happy. Again, the king came to look and once again saw that everything was as it had been before. The king went inside and stayed the night once again. And in the morning, the man accompanied the king out and the king asked him how he managed. And he said, the king issued a decree making it forbidden to employ anyone to clean out a house. The king made a decree that it wasn't allowed for me to cut down trees anymore. So I, I went and found new work. I found the ability to clean people's houses. That morning, the king issued a new decree, forbidding it to employ anybody to clean one's house. At that point, this individual was looking once again for another way to make money. The man went to the king's recruiting office to sign up as a soldier in the king's army. Some soldiers were forcefully conscripted to the army service, but others were hired soldiers and they served to pay. The man went to the recruiting office and signed up for pay. However, he made a condition with the recruiting officer that he was not signing up permanently, but only for a moment, and that he was to receive his pay for each day. At each night, he would receive the pay for that morning's work. The officer immediately dressed him in an army uniform. He hung a sword at his side and he sent him to where he needed to be. Towards evening after this man who used to fix things and then used to cut down trees and then used to clean houses and now found himself as a soldier. At night he had completed all of his duties and he threw off his uniform and he went to buy his home meal and that meal was mamisha meal. He went home and he was very happy. And again, the king went to look and he saw that everything was ready in front of this person and that he was very, very happy. And the king went into the man's house and he laid down once again. And in the morning he asked him how he managed and the man told the king, without knowing that it was the king, what he had done. The king summoned the recruiting officer. He instructed him not to pay any day wages to anybody anymore. That morning when the, men meant, when the man went to the recruiting office to collect his day's pay, in order to pay for his meal of wine and food and to find joy, the officer refused to give him anything at all. And he said, it's by dictate of the king.
But I made a condition with you, said the man, that you would pay me every day. The king has decreed not to pay anybody today, replied the recruiting officer. All the man's pleas were of no avail. But I will be happy to pay you tomorrow for two days. But today it's impossible to pay. What was the man to do? How was he able to find money for his meal that night, to find joy that night? He broke off the blade of his sword from its handle, replacing it with a piece of wood. When the sword was in its sheath, it was not the least bit visible from the outside. The man pawned the small blade of wood, the small blade of the sword, and with that money, he was able to buy his meal, and he was very happy indeed because that meal was mamisha meal. The king arrived once again, and he saw that the man was completely happy as before. Again, the king entered his house and laid down, and he asked this person who used to fix things, and then used to cut down trees, and then used to clean houses, and then used to work as a soldier, and then finally was forced to break his sword and put a piece of wood in its place and pretend that his sword was still there. He asked him how he was able to have such a meal. And he explained everything to the, to the king. He explained how he was forced to break off the blade of his sword from the handle and how he had pawned it in order to buy what he needed. And afterwards, when I received the pay for the day, when I get paid tomorrow, said the soldier, said the man, I will redeem the blade and repay the sword. Nobody will, nobody will be able to see a thing because I can repair anything that is broken so there will be no loss to the king. The king immediately ran to his palace and he called the recruiting officer. He told him that a certain person had been condemned to death. He instructed the officer to call the particular soldier, this man who we've been speaking about all along, to come and to execute this individual who was in need of death. He was condemned to death. This individual who had broken the metal off of his sword and replaced it with a piece of wood would be the soldier who would condemn this man to death and chop off his head. The officer summoned the man who came before the king. Now again, the king was dressed in royal clothes. And the king gave instructions to all of his ministers to assemble in order to witness this comic spectacle, exposing a man who had stuck a piece of wood in his sword in place of a blade. The man came before the king and fell on his feet. He said, my lord, my king, why have I been summoned? And the king responded in order to cut off this condemned criminal's head. And the man with the wooden sword pleaded with the king. He says, king, I have never shed blood in my entire life. He begged the king to call someone else for this. The king answered and he said, nobody else was obliged to kill this man, only you. And the man responded, the man again with the wooden sword responded, is the verdict so clear cut? Perhaps it is not so clear that he deserves to die. Because once again, I have never shed blood in my entire life. How could I shed blood when it is not clear that this prisoner deserved to die? And the king replied that there was no shadow of a doubt that the prisoner deserved to die. And you and nobody but you must execute him. The man who had originally fixed things in order to find joy, and when fixing things, things was no longer available 
cut trees in order to find joy. And when cutting trees was no longer available, cleaned houses to find joy. And when cleaning houses was no longer available, became a soldier to find joy. And when being a soldier was no longer available, he sold his sword and made a fake sword out of wood in order to find joy. This man was responsible to kill the criminal. The man saw that he could not prevail over the king. So he turned to Hashem Yisbarach and he said, Eternal God, never in my life have I shed blood. If this man is not guilty, let the blade of my sword turn into wood. He took hold of the sword and he drew it from its sheath and everybody saw that it was made of wood. Everybody laughed heartily. Or in the language of Rabbi Nachman, there was a great laughter. And the king saw that he was an excellent man and he sent him off in peace. The way that our modern tzaddikim of Breslov the way they interpret this story is as follows. The king is Hashem. Hashem sees our joy. Hashem sees our capacity to find comfort in a world that is broken. And like the story of Eov, Hashem wants to see if we can handle it when our joy is taken away from us. And this individual, this man, tries with all of his might to find reasonable reasons for joy. And in the end, all he can do is fake it. All he can do is pretend. All he can do is act. All he can do is lie. All he can do is create a, a scene, a theatrical scene, as if the sword that was metal turned into wood, when in truth it was wood all along. As if to say all of our amuna and all of our strength that we use to fight against despondency in this world has always been wood. It's always been a joke. It's never been real. But when we show Hashem that we're willing to find joy even by faking it, even with our own lies, even in our own imaginings, what Hashem sees at that moment is a great schaik a great laughter, because what we have found is the ability to dream as we are awake. Our job, forget our job, what I am trying to cultivate for myself in the present moment is the ability to act as if, the ability to live with the sense of ke'ilu, to pretend that our swords are made out of metal, when in truth we know that our swords are made out of wood. But ultimately, Hashem desires us pretending. Hashem wants us to pretend that our emuna and our bitachon is made out of metal, is secure, is structured, even though we know that it's only made out of wood. Because what Hashem wants from us is the surrender. What Hashem wants from us is our willingness to say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we have absolutely no idea what to do. We have no idea how to fight. We have no idea how to move forward. We can't execute the enemy because our swords are not real. But what we can do is we can act. We can pretend. We can live in a world of dimyon. We can live in a world of dreams. Because when we dream, we will be able to finally say, Hayinu kecholmen. We were like dreamers. 
that all of gullus and all of exile and all of despondency and all the fear and all the anxiety and all the overwhelmingness and all of the things that make us so frightened for ourselves and for everybody else is nothing but a dream. It's a dream that we're capable of overcoming. It's a dream that we're capable of showing Hashem that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, our swords... <laughs> Our swords are made out of wood, but we're pretending. We're pretending that our swords are metal. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu, let our pretending be beautiful in your eyes. And let our Amuna in Dimyon and Chalomos bring us to a true world of Dimyon, to a world of imagination where Mashiach Tzidkenu comes, and where the Shivaroim come, and where our Tzadikim come again. And Be'ezra Hashem, those of us who are willing to continue to fight with our wooden swords, even though we know they can't protect us, nevertheless, our Amuna and our Bitochan will have the ability to give us the strength to enter into that place of Hayinu Kecholmim. We were like dreamers. Hashem, we never believed the world was real anyway. We never believed that it was real. It's all a stage. It's all a stage. We're all acting but bring us to that place where we can recognize that our acting is emuna, And Be'ezra Sashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, will show us of Hayinu Kecholmim, Oz Yimalei Schoik Pinu. Then we can really laugh when everyone realizes that our swords were always wood, but we were pretending that they were metal. We were pretending that we had faith because pretending ultimately is the truest thing that we can possibly do. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.